On today's morning show, we turn our attention to Laurel, Mississippi. This is a community that I feel like I actually know pretty well, even though I've never been there, because my wife and I very much enjoy watching a series on HGTV called Hometown, in which Ben and Aaron Napier bring about spectacular home renovations. Laurel, Mississippi is also a town that I have heard of because it is the hometown of the operatic superstar Leontine Price, and it's also the hometown of the renowned athlete Ralph Boston. But Laurel, Mississippi also has a tragic legacy, a tragic history of violence and racism. And that history was particularly violent and troubling during the 1960s. And it is explored in an extraordinary new book called When Evil Lived in Laurel, The White Knights and the Murder of Vernon Damer. The White Knights, that name refers to a particularly violent chapter of the Ku Klux Klan. And the name Vernon Damer belongs to a man who was a courageous worker for voter rights in that part of Mississippi. This book is also the story of a courageous FBI informant, uh, a young white man from Laurel by the name of Tom Landrum, who hated the work of the Ku Klux Klan so much that he was willing to become a member of the Ku Klux Klan as an FBI informant, risking great peril to both himself and his young family. And this book brings to light for the first time ever his story. It's published by W.W. W. Norton & Company. Again, the book is When Evil Lived in Laurel, The White Knights, and the Murder of Vernon Damer. Its author, Curtis Wilkie, uh, covered civil rights as a national correspondent for the Boston Globe for many, many years. Before we talk specifically about your book, I wonder if we could hear a little bit about your own connection with the state of Mississippi, your own personal connection to that state, and to its often troubled history. Uh, first of all, exactly where were you born and raised, and uh, what kind of a young man were you uh, in the midst of what was all going on in the South? I was born in 1940, which makes me 80 years old, uh, in Greenville, Mississippi, in the uh, Mississippi Delta, which uh, was a uh, predominantly cotton-producing region at that time where probably three-quarters of the population uh, happened to be black, and most of them were farm laborers. It was a region uh, with a great deal of wealth, but also a great deal of poverty, and uh, it was a center for a lot of the um, uh, activity during the Civil Rights Movement in in the 1960s uh you know so i'm a native mississippian i went to the university of mississippi i graduated there in 1963 uh, a semester after the infamous riot one black man james meredith uh, was poised to become a student there and uh, the governor and the segregationist powers that be uh, tried to block that and it eventually involved a constitutional uh, confrontation between the state of Mississippi and the Kennedy administration. And, and the federal government won, but at great expense, uh, they had to deploy 30,000 troops to ensure that uh, this one black man would be able to enroll in the school. There was a, 
a major riot on campus. Uh, most of the participants were not students, but uh, you know, Klansmen and uh, segregationist racist who had uh, been summoned to Oxford to uh, you know protect the sovereignty of Mississippi as they saw it. So it was a turbulent time, as you mentioned. And uh, after graduation. I went to work for a small daily newspaper in Clarksdale, Mississippi, in the Delta. And uh, for the next nearly seven years, I worked there as a young reporter. And uh, my you know, greatest beat was the civil rights movement. I uh, got to cover a great deal of it firsthand. I got to interview a number of times, you know, so many of the prominent leaders, uh, Martin Luther King, you know, Roy Wilkins, and John Lewis. Just, uh, you know, uh, everybody seemed to come through the Delta at one point or another. So, you know, that was uh, my grounding for it. Laura was in another part of the state, and I did not cover the activities of the White Knights at that time, although everybody in the state was aware of it. Uh, They were the same organization that had carried off the murders of the three civil rights workers in Neshoba County, which was one of the more horrific events in the movement. Uh, And uh, uh, later on, uh, 30-odd years later, uh, as a reporter for the Boston Globe, I covered the final trial of the Imperial Wizard of the White Knights, a character named Sam Bowers. And they finally felt they had enough evidence to uh, finally convict him, and they brought him to trial uh, in 1998, I covered that trial and uh, saw Bowers convicted and finally sent to prison for the rest of his life. Uh, so I, I had that background. I, uh, and uh, in the lead up to covering that trial, I had spent time with the Damer family, with Vernon Damer's widow and one of his sons, Vernon Jr. And so uh, I had I had that background. Uh, when the opportunity arose to, uh, you know, uh, develop this story uh, more fully, uh, you know, in over the last three years, when some material became available to me. One of the things that really strikes me about this book is the way you so vividly describe what was behind the racist attitudes of so many of the men who were part of the Ku Klux Klan at this time. And we'll talk about that eventually, but I want to bring this back to you personally. Uh, What was it like for you to grow up in Mississippi uh, amidst a culture in which there was so much racism? And were you from the start, in a sense, standing in stark contrast to that? I mean, were you an example of someone uh, who was white and from a white family in Mississippi that, for whatever reason, uh, was just not a part of that particular culture in in Mississippi? Well, luckily, I I came from a home environment where uh, any kind of uh, racism or, you know, even using uh, racial epithets was, you know, strongly discouraged. my mother was a school teacher. My stepfather was a Presbyterian minister. So, uh, you know, I was fortunate enough to have had, a, a, even as a child, a, a, 
a stronger background in that respect uh, than a lot of my contemporaries. You know, I was not a, a profile encouraged by any means. Uh, although, you know, I recognized very early that, you know, even segregation was wrong, you know, uh, much more so uh, activities of, of the Klan and, and uh, organizations like that. Um, and, uh, at the University of Mississippi, you know, uh, I think I finally had developed a slight reputation as a maverick or you know, a little um, more of a, a liberal or, you know, even a, I called them bohemians back in those days uh, because, you know, I had traveled, I'd worked away in the summers. And so, um, you know, I came at the subject from a, a different perspective from so many of my contemporaries. And it's not to say that, you know, you know, growing up that, uh, you know, I probably did, I probably did entertain, you know, some notions about segregation and, uh, you know, may have even accepted it for a while because it seemed like everybody did, but uh, never the violence, of, you know, that surrounded it. And you know, it was it was in college where I like to think that you know my mentality blossomed a little bit, and I became um, you know different from most of the white Mississippians that I knew, and and so you know journalism was naturally a profession to uh, to turn to. Hmm. We're speaking with Curtis Wilkie about his new book, When Evil Lived in Laurel. The White Knights and the Murder of Werner, uh, Vernon Damer. And uh, Laurel refers, of course, to Laurel, Mississippi. There is a lot to talk about in this sprawling story. Uh, and one of the stories that is most important for us is to talk about Vernon Damer and what made him such an impressive man, if someone who was really not well-known at all outside of his, his community in, in Mississippi. But uh, Vernon Damer did very important and indeed courageous work, and this is what ultimately led to his death. First of all, explain the culture that was uh, so entrenched in Mississippi and the work that Vernon Damer tirelessly did uh, to change that culture and the practices that he found so repugnant. Well, in the 1960s, when uh, the story takes place, uh, Mississippi was you know, totally in the grip of segregationist leadership uh, up and down the state. So Vernon Damer, uh, as a black man, working uh, for civil rights, uh, was opposed to uh, what was known as the white power structure in Mississippi. Uh, he was uh, he's one of the three major figures in my book. Um, uh, he lived outside of Hattiesburg, which is just south of Laurel uh, in another county. And he was... Uh, well-known in the area, uh, even in the Mississippi Delta, you know, 250 miles 
from Laurel, I knew who Vernon Damer was because he had developed a reputation as one of the most effective black activists uh, in, operating in the state at that time. He was primarily engaged in voter registration before the passage of the uh, Voting Rights Act in 1965. And then afterwards, uh, when that was passed, you know, he was working closely with lawyers from the Civil Rights Division, the Justice Department, to try to get as many blacks registered uh, in his home county, Forest County, as he could. And uh, that was resented by the white power structure. Uh, they, they, they had for years uh, suppressed the black folk. Uh, there were uh, there was an office called the circuit clerk in each county that controlled uh, registration for voting, and for years they denied blacks uh, the right to vote. The, we had uh, all sorts of uh, devices to pre- prevent blacks from voting. We had a poll tax that uh, many blacks did not have enough money to pay for a poll tax. They had uh, literacy requirements, which involved, uh, for blacks, a question uh, regarding interpretation of the state constitution. And it was very easy for the circuit clerks to plump them on their literacy tests. Uh, Vernon Damer uh, earlier had been registered to vote. He's one of the few people who actually uh, made it through to get his name on the rolls, but then... uh, Forest County purged the rolls and effectively uh, took away the right to vote for those few blacks who actually had the vote. And uh, Damer was indignant about that, and he took this up as uh, his personal cause. He was a a well-known figure uh, in the area. He was a a farmer. He also had a country store, uh, had a large family, and very well-known, very respected. Uh, He was a prominent member of his church and uh, and extremely active uh, in the voting rights activity. And he uh, was able to recruit a number of the major uh, young people who were uh, later became the shock forces of the civil rights movement. uh, the young kids at the time who were uh, members of SNCC, Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee, uh, even though uh, Damer was president of the NAACP, and sometimes that organization was at odds with SNCC because uh, uh, SNCC uh, was more militant, was the word used back then, and uh, uh, more uh, ready for uh, direct action in the civil rights movement to confront uh, the officials uh, physically if if they had to. And the NAACP was more moderate, you know, preferred to use uh, federal law to try to uh, achieve what they wanted to do. But uh, Vernon Damer was uh, such a commanding figure that several of the very prominent uh, uh, young men and women who were involved with Nick in Mississippi uh, uh, came to Vernon Damer's farm, lived there, and worked with him on voter registration. So uh, he was, you know, he was a hero. He was a very, very admirable figure, and as a result, 
he became a target uh, uh, for annihilation by the white knights who uh, had their headquarters about 20 miles from his home. One of the things you tell us about Vernon Damer is, uh, and I'll, I'll read how you describe this, it, it, it's an important part of who he was and why he was able to do what he did. You write, Damer enjoyed more independence than most blacks in the South. As a successful farmer and businessman, he was free from the economic pressures often used against others who faced the prospect of losing their jobs if they dared challenge the system. Uh, I mean, Vernon Damer uh, was not a wealthy man, but he was someone who, in a sense, uh, because uh, he owned his own farm and a store, uh, he was in a position uh, to do things that, that many others sharing similar concerns were not. And I think it's important for us to kind of understand this part of his story. That's right. Uh, uh, some of the most prominent uh, leaders in the movement were people who uh, were not bound to white employers. You know, uh, the uh, uh, civil rights figure in Mississippi I was personally closest to was the state NAACP president, uh, whose name was Aaron Henry, very, very prominent figure in the movement. And Aaron lived in Clarksdale, so he uh, he was a pharmacist, uh, and he had to endure uh, you know, bombings at his store, uh, his drugstore, uh, as well as his home. But uh, you know, he was the boss of his own business, and therefore. Uh, he could not be intimidated uh, economically, although the you know the segregations, the racists certainly uh, tried to intimidate him by you know the force of uh, you know bombs and fires and threats, et cetera. So there is uh, the story of one night when uh, a fire is set. At the house of of the Damers, and uh, and ultimately Vernon Damer uh, dies from injuries sustained uh, in that tragic and and terrifying night, and thus sets in motion uh, the sort of the, the the balance of this story. At this point, uh, I think we should talk a little bit about the activity of the Ku Klux Klan uh, in Mississippi and and much of the South uh, during this time and how, in, in many respects, their activity was, was actually really, really on, on the rise. And one of the things your book spells out that had, had never you know, occurred to me before until I, I, I read When Evil Lived in Laurel is the fact that it was some of the advancements that were made uh, in terms of proper laws and, and being a, a, at least a little more uh, at, at least a little more uh, stringently uh, adhered to that that fired up the Klan and some of their activities. You write it this way, once dependable devices of obstruction no longer worked for the old guard. Uh, and this is one of the reasons why the Klan steps up its activities. Uh, explain a little more about the loss of these dependable devices of obstruction. Uh, I think it's an important thing for, for us to understand. 
Well, those would have been official uh, means of obstruction. Uh, in other words, uh, uh, until the federal government intervened, uh, Mississippi was in the hands of segregationist officials. And, uh, you know, they could uh, deny blacks the right of vote. Uh, uh, you know, we had segregation into public schools. And suddenly um, there were laws that... Uh, eliminated that going all the way back to Brown v. Board of Education in 1954. Uh, it's really about the time that uh, the, the movement got really underway uh, to resist these these old laws, and, and yet it took uh, a number of years to overcome it. But as each uh, obstacle at the hands of the segregations fell, uh, that kind of uh, motivated the plan to, to for the Klan to uh, become even more active. They, they felt they were the, the the last resort for the old South. Uh, you know, their, their crazy symbols were uh, the Confederate battle flag and the Bible. They had a perverted sense of, uh, of religion. Uh, that, uh, you know, they were soldiers of a segregationist god. Uh, Sam Bowers, who was the imperial wizard of the White Knights, developed a philosophy called Christian militancy. And it essentially called for murdering people uh, if they ran afoul of, uh, you know, the kind of uh, laws that... uh, Bowers thought Mississippi should have. So, uh, you know, there were a number of different clans operating in Mississippi and elsewhere in the Deep South during that period. And they were rivals. And the White Knights were determined to outdo all the other clans. In fact, uh, Vernon Damer lived in a county where the White Knights did not have an operation. Uh, they had something called the United Clans there. And uh, the White Knights thought, well, they would go down and take care of Damer to show up the rival clan in Forest County that how much better and stronger was the clan in Laurel. That was a surprise to me as I read your book is <laughs> all of the infighting and rivalries within the Ku Klux Klan and, and various chapters. And and you also describe an organization that is uh, rather loosely and haphazardly organized in some ways. And, of course, in other ways, uh, it appeared at least at a glance to be very organized and hierarchical and uh, you know, kind of a finely tuned machine. And it's sort of intriguing to think of it being kind of both of these things, an unwieldy, uh, disorganized uh, organization uh, in in sort of vast scale, and yet within it, uh, it was trying to operate with with cool efficiency. Uh, Is it just that there is this kind of contradiction? I mean, can both things be true? How, How can we understand kind of the nature of how the Klan functioned at this time? 
Well, the Klan would have uh, various offices, you know, almost uh, uh, there in, in their eyes, the equivalent of uh, statewide offices, offices uh, uh, of government. You know, they'd have the imperial wizard who was, you know, the governor, and um, they would have a director of, uh, uh, of uh, investigation they felt was the equivalent of J. Edgar Hoover at the FBI, and uh, you know, on down with the silly titles, uh, you know, uh, uh, just yeah. So on paper, it looked like they had a good, strong or, or operation, and it was hierarchical. And Sam Bowers called the shots. Uh, he was the imperial wizard, uh, but uh, he presided over largely an assembly of fools. Uh, that was the thing that came across most clearly to me in the uh, extensive papers that uh, were given to me by Tom Landrum uh, uh, three years ago. It was his journals uh, that he prepared for the FBI during the four years he was a member. Um, uh, these people were largely uneducated. Uh, they were resentful. They uh, were Many of them poor, didn't have good jobs, uh, filled with hatred of blacks, and uh, just uh, you know, malcontents. And they joined the Klan, I think, in part. They felt it was a prestigious thing for them to do. But uh, how ineffective they were came across so clearly to me in Landrum's journals. Uh, the paranoia that uh, was widespread among all of the members, they felt that they were besieged by spies within. And, and to some extent, they were. Tom Landrum was not the only person who had joined the Klan to inform on them. In other cases, the FBI paid for uh, members to uh, become informants. <laughs> and... Uh, uh, a classic example of how uh, ridiculous they were was their raid that they made on the Damer house the night that Damer was killed. They went in two carloads. They were going to burn down Damer's home as well as his business, which was about 100 feet away. It was a country store. And, uh, you know, they're heavily armed. They're armed with... Uh, gallon jugs of gasoline to throw in to start the fire, kind of, uh, you know, oversized Molotov cocktails. Um, one of the uh, riders, there were four guys in each car. Uh, the Imperial Wizard didn't go on the raid. He's the one that orchestrated it, but uh, he would never actually take part in these uh, activities. Um there are four in each car. In the car that uh, where the uh, occupants burned down the Damer home, there was a character who loved cowboy movies, and he had styled himself his own holster for a quick-draw holster. He had his pistol there, and in the, in the excitement, he dropped the pistol and left it behind. The occupants of the other car that burned down the store began to leave, 
and the occupants of the other car saw this car. And they'd been traveling together, but uh, one of the guys thought it was the police. So he very helpfully shot out the tires of the other car. So they had to abandon one of their two getaway cars, and eight of them clambered into one car. They're all cursing each other and threatening each other. And then one of them peeps up and says, uh, we've got to go back uh, as the car is kind of creaking back toward Laurel, uh, oversi- uh, overweighted with all these characters. And the guy says, we've got to go back. I dropped my pistol. And so they're ready to, they first were ready to kill the guy who had uh, shot the tires out. And then they were ready to kill the guy who had dropped his pistol. And so uh, all of these things they left behind led to eventually, you know, the capture arrest and prosecution of everybody involved in the uh, in the raid so mm. uh, w- uh these were not exactly a, a crack swat team mm. they were just a bunch of essentially fools it's such an interesting face of the ku klux klan that we don't often think about i mean and we rightly so think of the ku klux klan as as uh an, an agency of of terror and destruction and death. Uh, I mean, well, they, they were. They did a tremendous amount of harm, and yet, beneath those hoods, beneath those fearsome-looking hoods, uh, we're, we're talking about human beings. Many of them uh, uh, ill-equipped for what they were wanting to do, and uh, it's 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 a, it's it's a it's a it's a face of the Ku Klux Klan that we. Uh, we tend not to, to, to think about. Uh, just a quick connection to the present day. Uh, this is what you write about many of the members of the Ku Klux Klan, and this comes from the observations of Tom Landrum, who we'll talk about in a moment. Many of the Klansmen, you write, felt wounded by society, poorly educated, ignorant of modern skills, and consigned to unrewarding jobs. They seethed over their own situations. Some had served blue-collar apprenticeships as roughnecks on treacherous offshore oil stations in the nearby Gulf or labored on the drilling rigs that dotted Jones County. Others held grim places on the line at minor factories or scrabbled for irregular income as shade tree mechanics, lumber mill operatives, gas station grease monkeys, door-to-door salesmen of shoddy goods, or farmers striving to wrestle a prosperous crop from the punishing soil in a region too far from the Mississippi River to have been blessed by its rich alluvial deposits. Resentment boiled up in them like bile from an unsettled stomach and it somehow hardened into a hatred of the black man. I read those words and I find them chilling because although you are writing about members of the Ku Klux Klan in the 1960s, you of course could also be writing about uh, a certain part of the American population in the year 2021. I I just wonder how much you think about that. Yeah, that certainly uh, occurred to me in writing uh, that there are certain parallels, uh, uh, demagoguery, um, racial hatred, uh, uh, you know, kind of super nationalism, um, and then uh, activity by government officials, uh, 
trying to enact all sorts of measures to once again suppress the black vote, which is going on in a number of states today by you know agents of the Republican Party. And I don't know whether how many of them uh, realize the precedent you know, it goes back to the activities of uh, the racist in the Deep South and, 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 and the Ku Klux Klan. We're speaking with Curtis Wilkie about his book, When Evil Lived in Laurel, The White Knights and the Murder of Vernon Damer. Uh, so what we have not yet talked about uh, beyond just a brief mention or two is the story of one Tom Landrum, uh, described at one point as a young, unassuming member of a family with deep Mississippi roots who agreed to join the Ku Klux Klan not uh, for any beliefs of his own, but in order to become an unpaid FBI informant. It's an extraordinary story. First of all, explain how you first came to know about Tom Landrum and what he had done for the FBI. I was approached by uh, members of his family uh, and a lawyer that they had uh, retained uh to see if I might be interested in telling Tom Landrum's story. He had finally been, oh, 50 years later, identified in some obscure publication as a Klansman. And uh, he felt very troubled about it. And uh, his family, who had only recently learned that he had undertaken this mission when uh, his children were quite small, his wife had supported him. She knew about it as well as his mother-in-law and a couple of other people uh, who were, uh, you know, public officials, but ones he could trust who were also fighting the Klan in Mississippi. And uh, so they would like to clear Tom Landrum's name. And they approached me, I suppose, because of my long personal history of having covered the movement myself. Uh, there are not a whole lot of us still around. And uh, also, I'd written a couple of books that uh, you know, were, were at least well-known in Mississippi. And um, uh, they came to me, and uh, they indicated they had some uh, uh material that would basically describe the operations of the White Knights for those four years that Tom um, was a member. Uh, Landrum was well into his 80s at the time, but uh, I, I went down to Laurel and uh, met with him and his, his family, and uh, we, we hit it off. Uh, he's a, he was a wonderful old man. Tom died. Uh, about a year and a half into the project, but not before I had had many very rewarding personal conversations with him where I was able to flesh out firsthand through talking to him some of the events that are that he described in his reports to the FBI. So uh, I just worked closely with them, and uh, he, was, uh, he was truly a hero and an unknown hero. Nobody knew what he had done. And as you said earlier, it was at great peril to 
Tom Landrum and all the members of his family. And yet he felt it was something he needed to do because like a lot of white Mississippians at the time, he was troubled by the Klan, troubled by uh, the harsh discrimination that went on in Mississippi and uh, looked for some uh, way to try to be helpful. Uh, there were there were a number of white Mississippians who were troubled by what went on here in the '60s, but you know they they really had no organization to look to to uh, to rally behind, and so it was largely a, a quiet opposition to the Klan. I, I know my own family uh, hated the Klan, but uh, you know they were they were quiet. They never. Uh, went out and demonstrated or anything, but they certainly abhorred what was going on. Tom was, uh, he had seen discrimination firsthand. He had heard blacks who were friends of him insulted uh, and spoken to, you know, treated like beasts instead of human beings. And um, he had a revulsion to it. And uh, when he was, asked by a friend of his who was a local FBI agent if he might be willing to, uh, you know, become a, uh, a member in order to report on their activities. Uh, after talking with his wife and his mother-in-law, uh, he agreed to do so and uh, actively reported on uh, them for uh, that four-year period until the White Knights were essentially uh uh, disbanded and uh, many of them had been sent to jail. Um, but uh, Tom's journals are invaluable. And that, that's the genesis for my book uh, because they offer a very detailed description of the actual meetings that you actually go inside these clan meetings and you hear the conversations and um, really for for me, it was the first time I'd ever uh, had on my hands you know, firsthand accounts of you know the way they conducted themselves in their meetings, in their conversations, in their plots to you know terrorize uh, uh, the whole state. You know, and uh, the state was the state of Mississippi was terrorized by the Klan in 1964. That was our very worst year. That was the year of Freedom Summer. And that was the year the three young men were killed in Neshoba County uh, by the uh, by the White Knights. Uh, they were executed uh, with the complicity of the sheriff and the deputy sheriff of that county. So, uh, you, know, you know, you learn that uh, among the members of the uh, Laurel chapter of the uh, uh, White Knights. One of them was the county uh, circuit clerk, the guy in charge of voter registration. Hmm. He was a card-carrying member of the White Knights, and he was the guy who could deny blacks the right to vote. He also had the ability in his office to salt any jury with at least one Klansman, include Klansman on jury list so that 
they'd always have a hung jury if, uh, despite heavy evidence, to convict Klansmen who might have been arrested and brought to trial. Mm. Um, and you had you had ministers, uh, mostly fundamentalist ministers, uh, who belonged to the Klan. And, uh, you know, one of the leaders of the raid on Vernon Damer's home, that deadly raid, was a Baptist minister. Mm. So it's pretty chilling. Absolutely. And, uh, you know, we all we all lived through that year. And uh, even though we didn't have a clan in the part of the Delta where I lived, uh, there was an active clan in Greenwood, Mississippi, and one of them was an infamous assassin named Delay Beckwith, who uh, shot and killed Megar Evers, who was the leading civil rights figure in Mississippi in 1963 when Beckwith killed him. So there's a great deal of intimidation, uh, burning, bombing in the South Mississippi County where I grew up. Uh, more than 20 black churches, which served as centers for voter registration activities, more than 20 churches were either bombed or burned down in that one county. So it was it was a terrible time. Mm. And uh, yeah, I, I, I hope I effectively convey that in in the book. It was a, it was a time when they. It totally terrorized the state. I think you you characterize it very very vividly, and uh, and you describe, of course, in a sense, two arenas in which these evil attitudes were carried out, not just the torch carrying uh, members of the Ku Klux Klan on their their deadly and destructive uh, runs but also the work in offices and behind desks by public officials who were also members of the Klan. You characterized them once uh, in the book as members of the Invisible Empire. I mean, these loyal members of the Klan in places of authority, of influence, uh, that could also carry out uh, carry out this work. Well, of course, your book does talk about the brave work of this FBI informant Tom Landrum, and I think you do a great job of conveying his conflicted feelings. I mean, he hated the Ku Klux Klan and, uh, of course, wanted to see its terrible uh, activities ended, but for him to aid the cause of the FBI by himself becoming a member of this group that he hated so much, I mean, it's hard to imagine uh, just what that would feel like uh, to have to, in a sense, step inside the hood and become a card-carrying member of the Ku Klux Klan uh, in order to help try to bring about its its demise. Uh, I'm, I'm sure you're struck by that as well. Yeah, I, I would not have done it had uh, I been approached by the FBI and uh, you know, asked to join the Klan. I, I, I wouldn't have done it because of the risk involved. Um, and, uh, you know, Tom Landrum was, and, you know, there were a handful of uh, people like him uh, who 
took that risk. And then uh, that's white people, but then you had more than one-third of the population state. These were black people, and they lived every day at risk to being terrorized and murdered and beaten up and had their homes burned or their churches burned. Uh, so, you know, it was, uh, in many ways, it was a very heroic uh, uh, period in Mississippi history, the civil rights period. Uh, not enough whites were engaged in it at the time, but uh, enough were that uh, with the help, certainly the help of the federal government, um, uh, they, they were able to finally stamp out the Klan. Klan no longer exists. I mean, there are a few pockets of lunatics uh, some places, but uh, they're effectively, uh, they were effectively uh, done away with before the end of the decade of the 60s. How much did Tom Landrum have to keep this a secret? I mean, obviously, in the four years uh, that he was this informant for the FBI, he had to be as secretive as possible. Uh, but even once this activity was done, how much did he have to keep this a secret? Well, you know, oddly enough, he had to keep the fact that he was a member of the Klan secret, too. You know, they were supposed to operate in utter secrecy. People were not supposed to know who belonged to the Klan. Uh, but uh, within, uh, you know, within four years, uh, you know, the Klan had been wiped out, you know, thanks in part to people like Tom Landrum. And certainly, uh, you know, the uh, the work of the FBI, uh, uh, sometimes the FBI uh, did illegal things. And I mentioned two or three uh, uh, things the FBI did that were you know, absolutely illegal. They brought in a, a mafia hitman from New York who was also an informant for the FBI. Uh, they brought him to Mississippi to you know, carry out a beating with a couple of other people of a principal member of the White Knights in order to extract uh, information from him, it's an extraordinary thing. Uh, they, they, uh, uh, the FBI set up uh, illegal ambushes. You know, certainly not exactly due process, where they shot and killed in one instance uh, uh, these you know, raiders who were coming to uh, to bomb the home of a prominent Jewish businessman in uh, Meridian. Uh, you know. You know, I should add that you know the Klan didn't just uh, hate blacks; they hated Jews and they hated Catholics. So they, you know, they had uh, you know three targets, but primarily the targets were black. But they uh, they blew up uh, synagogues and the homes of uh, rabbis in Mississippi. Uh, that was kind of their last major offensive was aimed at Jews and uh, it was just as virulent against uh, the Jewish people as, as it was against the blacks. Mm -hmm. 
enough hatred to go around, unfortunately. It, it's an incredible story. And uh, I want to just repeat that uh, one of the things that persuaded Tom Landrum to undertake this perilous work as an FBI informant was the encouragement of both his wife and his mother-in-law. And you describe those scenes in which both of these extraordinary women feel strongly that Tom needs to do this. And of course, he does it. And he does it very well. And uh, the story of that is, is told as well. And of course, you update us on all of the stories of those who ultimately uh, were brought to justice for their terrible deeds. And uh, it's a story that is an important story of history and also a cautionary tale for the present. When Evil Lived in Laurel, The White Knights and the Murder of Vernon Damer, published by W.W. Norton and Company, and the author, Curtis Wilkie. Curtis Wilkie, I congratulate you on telling a complex story so very, very well, so effectively. Thank you for telling this story and for being part of the morning show. Greg, uh, thank you. I've enjoyed talking to you.